The reading tonight is John 3, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The journey uh, to the joy of healing must first begin with the dark moment of diagnosis. I guess if you were to ask uh, anyone who had recovered from a potentially uh, terminal disease, uh, they would say that being uh, correctly diagnosed as painful and as difficult of those days, those early days must have been, were in retrospect the first steps on the path to a new life. John Newton, uh, known to many of us, was famously a slave trader uh, who uh, got converted, became a Christian, spent much of the rest of his life then campaigning against uh, the slave trade. He authored perhaps the most famous uh, hymn uh, in the sort of Christian canon, Amazing Grace. You remember how it starts, of course, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But as Francis Spufford uh, points out in a very thought-provoking book he's written called Unapologetic, he points out, of course, that in our society there would be many who would say, hang on a minute, wretch, wretch, don't call yourself a wretch, don't beat yourself up in public. How unhealthy to think of yourself as a wretch. That's not the road to self-esteem. That's not the road to releasing your potential. Sure, you made a mistake, but don't call yourself a wretch. Trouble is, of course, Newton was a wretch, and he knew it. And what he came to know, and what he, what he sets out in that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, what he came to see was that the very first good thing God did for him, the first taste of grace that John Newton received was to have his eyes open to his own wretchedness. He came to see that was the moment, that was the beginning of the road to health. 
So he goes on to say, doesn't he? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Have you ever pondered that line? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It was grace when I first began to fear what kind of man I was, that first opened my eyes to fear the God under whose condemnation I was living. That was my first taste of grace. And once God had opened my eyes to see what a wretched man I was, then, of course, I could see grace in all its fullness. I could come and to the God of grace and have my sins forgiven and begin that transformation, thereby my fears were relieved, as he goes on to say. Now, my guess is compared to Newton, we'd all come off pretty well. Uh, but that, of course, is because it is, as it's been well said, easy to look tall in a field of short grass. It's when we allow ourselves to glimpse our lives in the light of what we could be, in the light of what we should be, that things become more uncomfortable for us. It is when we uh, see ourselves supremely in the light of Jesus Christ, the true man, that things become more uncomfortable. And then the choice is simple. We can run and hide from that truth, or we can face reality like Newton did and be healed. That's the point of verses 19 and 20, isn't it? If you've got the Bible open, have a look uh, down. This is the verdict. Light, that is the Lord Jesus, has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Do you see the point? Striking, isn't it? Jesus comes as a light into a dark world. His life and his teaching, they light up the world. And yet the world rejects him. The world would have none of it. And why do they reject him? They reject him because the light of his life and teaching reveals them. It reveals how far short they feel uh, fall of what they could be, what they should be. The light is rejected because it reveals us, and that is profoundly uncomfortable. When we glance at the light of Jesus Christ, we see ourselves as we truly are. As we look at Jesus, as we look at his unbroken, undiluted, unhindered, unceasing love for God and for other people, we see just how marred the image of God is in us. It's uncomfortable. The light of Jesus, in fact, is a bit like an x-ray. It it pierces, it reveals the state of our hearts. We see in the light of Jesus' life just how far short our lives fall from his moral beauty. A bit like the stains that you only see on a shirt when you hold them up to the light that floods in through the window. Actually, says John, verses 9 and 20, we'd rather not know. We'd rather not know that it's uncomfortable. We'd rather not see it. We'd rather run and hide in the darkness then come out and be exposed by the light. After three years, of course, of Jesus, the world could bear his light no longer. And on that first Good Friday, we switched it off. But wonderfully, of course, the Christian message is is about more than God with us. It's about God for us. Jesus didn't just come as a light to reveal our sin, 
our separation from God. He came as love. He came, as we saw a week or two ago, as the Lamb of God who comes to rescue from sin and to restore our relationship with the God of life. He comes, if you like, do you see, to coax us out of hiding with the promise of healing. When an x-ray reveals a dark shadow, uh, that is bad news if you want to pretend that all is well. If you run and hide from that news, then the darkness will grow and will eventually kill you. But if you're prepared to admit that you have darkness within, if you're prepared to put your hand and your life into the hands of the physician, then that exposure is good news because it's the first step to healing, isn't it? And when it comes to healing the human condition, God has set forth the great physician in his son, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to perhaps the most famous verses in the Bible, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The most famous verses in the Bible probably on many a t-shirt, many a mug, many a fridge. What has struck me most as I've been preparing this over the last week or so is that this is indeed a great truth. It is a wonderful truth. But friends, I do not think it is an easy one. I do not think it is an easy one. Let's think about it for a moment. Let's think first about what is the object of God's love? As we think about the glory of these words, the object of God's love, what it's there, isn't it? For God so loved the world. That is the object of God's love, the world. Now, in John's use of the word world, the Greek word cosmos, John tends to use it to refer not so much to the bigness of the world, but to the badness of the world. That is to say, the sort of shock of these verses is that for God so loved this world, this messed up world, this world of sin and strife, this world of greed and violence, this is the world that God so loved. Loves people like me who mess up and cover up. People like me with my petty jealousies and my one-upmanship, and my self-centeredness. This is the world that God so loved. And the extent of his love is that he gives his one and only son. The idea behind this give is to, is to give up, to give over uh, into the hands of rebels, to give up to be killed for such a world. That is the extent of God's love, as one person uh, put it. God the Father gave the greatest gift at the greatest cost to the least deserving. That is the extent of God's love for this world, for people like me, for people like you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the purpose of his love that whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever, should not perish but have eternal life. The purpose of this love is to bring new life, is to remove the darkness of the human condition inherent in all of us and to replace it with light and to replace it with life. To move us, to use the language of John, from condemnation to being children of God. That is the purpose of his love. 
And what do I contribute to all of this? What do I bring? John says, I bring belief. That's what I bring. Belief enough in the gravity of my condition to put my life in the hands of the physician. Belief enough in him to, uh, to take the tablets, if you like. The word is actually literally, believe there, the Greek is, is literally to believe into, whoever believes into Jesus. In other words, it's an active word. It, it's not just um, you know, intellectual belief, I sort of believe this. It, it's, it's a word of commitment. Uh, one person put it like this, when I believe into Christ, I stop hiding and resisting. I surrender my autonomy. In response to the good news of all that Jesus has done, I like this, I hurl myself at him as my only hope. That's beautifully put. That's exactly what the word means. That's exactly what belief is in the Bible. I hurl myself at him as my only hope. I want to be really forgiven of real sin by a real saviour. That's belief. And in such love, as another hymn well puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The cross, friends, is where we see supremely God's love for us. It is a wonderful, wonderful truth. But friends, I do not think it is an easy one. By which I mean it wasn't easy then, was it? Do you remember, um, think of Peter. Remember Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, of course. Uh, What was his reaction? Do you remember when Jesus said to him, you know, uh, Peter, the climax of my life of love for you and the disciples is that I'm going to go to the cross and die for you. Do you remember Peter's reaction? He was furious. He was indignant. He was incredulous. What do you mean? That's not, what kind of love is that? You're going to a cross for me. That's not, that's, not, that's not the love I'm expecting. That's not the love we're all expecting. We're expecting a completely different kind of love when we roll into Jerusalem. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Do you remember the crowds that cheer Jesus into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday? What happens when they discover that Jesus' love for them is going to be demonstrated by his death on a cross? They're furious. They turn against him. It's not the kind of love they want. They want a love that demonstrates itself by driving the Romans out of Israel. They want a love that demonstrates itself in uh, sticking around and healing all of the physically sick. They want a love that demonstrates itself in, you know, resourcing the poor. That's the kind of love. That's their agenda. That's their plan. Not going to a cross for their sake. What kind of love is that? When they discovered that Jesus' agenda was to go to a cross rather than improve their circumstances, if you like, they struggled to see the love in that. And they struggled to see the love in that because they had yet to grasp that their greatest need was salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from that darkness within. Their greatest need, you see, was a new kind of life. A new kind of life, not just the improvement of an old way of life, but a whole new kind of life. They wanted to set Jesus' agenda because they thought they knew best. And friends, I don't know about you, but that is the battle that still rages in me. That still rages in me, that battle. If I'm honest, in my heart of hearts, how often do I want to see God's love demonstrated for me on my terms. This is the agenda I have. I look at my life, and this is what a good life would look like. And if you love me, Lord, 
You'll orientate things. You'll supervise my life such as I get what I want. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. God's love is demonstrated for me in the cross. How often do I look to see God's love demonstrated for me in my circumstances? How often do I want to look at these words and think, you know, how often do I think, oh, I wish they read. Perhaps they read. Perhaps if I screw up my eyes really tight, I can make them read. God so loved Paul White that he gave him a wife that always makes him happy. If I just, I really screw up my eyes tight. God so loved Paul White that he gave him three children who make his life comfortable by always doing what he says. You know, that'd be great, wouldn't it? That'd be great. I'd love that. God so loved Paul White that he will, he will always give him the all clear when he sits in the doctor's office. I'd love that. To put it the other way around, how quickly do I doubt God's love for me when my agenda, my plans, my purposes, my hopes are uh, derailed? When, when there is some, some suffering in my life? Or when there is some disappointment in my life, in a relationship, in a, whatever it might be? Uh, when there is some uh, difficulty? How quick am I to doubt God's love for me in moments like that? I'm quick. How quickly my circumstances become the barometer of God's love towards me rather than the cross. John 3.16 is a challenge to me, friends. I wonder if it is to you. It's a wonderful truth, but it's not an easy one. That's my battle, to really believe that my greatest need is salvation from sin and therefore that God's greatest demonstration of love is this, that he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for me, that I might have a new life, a new kind of life, rather than just sort of pander to the, my old kind of life, improvement of my old life, the life that I want. John 3.16 challenges me. I must, I must let the cross show me what the God of love is up to in my life. I must, I must let the cross of Christ set the agenda. I must let it show me what God's love towards me looks like. Now, don't mishear me. Please don't mishear me. I am not saying, I am not saying that the cross is the only demonstration of God's love towards us. Of course, in our new life with God, we're adopted into his family. We become children of a loving heavenly father. Of course, he pours out earthly blessings on us. Of course, he does. The New Testament is full of that. Uh, the Bible talks about that all the time. We're to receive them with joy. We're to give thanks for all our earthly blessings, knowing they come from the hand of, of a loving Heavenly Father. Of course he gives us earthly blessings. But here's the point. We rejoice in our circumstantial experiences of God's love. Of course we do. But friends, we must not root our lives in them. We mustn't root our lives in them. We do not root our knowledge of God's love for us in them. The first and the foundational place we look for God's love towards us is in the cross. 
Or to put it another way, God's supreme act of love towards us is seen objectively on the cross rather than felt subjectively in my experience. That's the point, it seems to me, of John 3.16. And when we believe that, what, what happens is we discover a love that can hold us in the downs as well as the ups. Because in every life there come downs as well as ups. And John 3.16, when we know that is the foundational place where we see God's love, it'll hold us when we're in the downs. And then John 3.16 floods our lives with healing light. You see, here is a love that can coax us out of hiding. Here is a love that can bring us warts and all into the healing light of God. John 3.16 says this, God loves me not because of the good in me, but despite the bad in me. That's the point, isn't it? He loves me not because of the good in me, but despite the bad in me. That's grace. That is the truth that liberates. When I look to the cross as the greatest demonstration of God's love, I see the cost of my forgiveness, and it is great indeed, God's Son. But then I can see, then I know that there is nothing I can do, nothing I can think, nothing I can say that puts me beyond the scope of that forgiving love. It cost God his own Son. Nothing I can say, do, think can put me beyond the scope of the forgiveness that he has won. And when I look to the cross, I see a God who is glad to pay that price for me. Glad to pay that price for me. What love? How does that not invite me into his light? No reason not to turn to a God like this. Come and be healed, John 3.16 says. Come and be healed. Perhaps you need to do that for the first time. The cross is where... God and his love are supremely to be found. Friends, if it is for the first time, it will be uncomfortable when you first turn to the Lord Jesus and you look at the cross. It will be uncomfortable. You'll be exposed. Like the x-ray that diagnoses God's light will reveal darkness within. But it is there that you will find God gladly taking whatever is exposed upon himself that he might heal it, paying for it. It is there that you will find forgiveness. And friends, nothing heals like forgiveness. Perhaps for many of us who've been Christians for a little while, this is, uh, we need to take this on board afresh. Uh, perhaps there is something in our lives that we're hiding from God because we'll, we feel perhaps he'll love us less if we expose it. John 3.16 wants to coax us out of that. Coax us out of hiding. God sees it. God knows it. That's why Jesus went to the cross. God's love for us is seen and he was glad to die for it. So bring it into his exposing, yes, and then healing light. Experience that love by coming afresh to the cross, the fountain of God's love. And I want to say this. The objectivity of God's love displayed in the cross is a great comfort to those of us who struggle experientially for a season, for whatever reason. I've been reading a book recently by an American uh, woman, an Episcopalian priest and theologian called uh, Catherine Green McCrate. And the book is called Darkness is My Only Companion. It's from the last line of Psalm 88. And uh, it really chronicles her own battle with uh, really chronic depression 
uh, bipolar depression. And it's her reflection on that and her sort of thinking through a Christian response to mental illness. I found it incredibly helpful. And one of the things that she says is this. It is a good thing that God does not look upon us according to our feelings, but according to the faithfulness of Christ. That is, the faithfulness that took him to the cross. And she goes on to say, I question the religious significance of feelings, especially for the Christian religion. Our salvation is something Jesus wrought on the cross, not in the interiority of our personality. You see what she's saying? She's saying when she was at her lowest and she could feel nothing, when she was in the grip of depression, did she doubt God's love for her? Well, she would have done if she thought that her feelings for God was the barometer of God's love for her. If she based her Christian walk on what she was feeling, her Christian walk would be in tatters. But she said time and time again, she goes back to John 3.16. She goes back to the cross and she says, that is where I see God's love for me supremely displayed. And though I can feel nothing at the moment, it doesn't matter. He won his salvation for me there on the cross. It's historical fact. That anchors me. Sometimes we must believe what we do not feel. Not all the time, but sometimes we must believe what we do not feel. Is that not what it means to live by faith and not by sight? Whether I feel it or not, the cross stands in history as a testimony to the truth that God loves me. God loves me. She goes on to say, you know, when people think about what it is to be human, what's the very heart of being human? She, she quotes Descartes. Do you remember, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore, I am. Very good, very clever. I think, therefore, I am. So the trouble is that when I'm suffering from depression, I can't think. My cognition goes. So if my identity is rooted in my ability to think, what am I? So many in our world root their identity in, 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 in the world around them, don't they? I think, therefore, I am. I'm attractive, therefore, I am. I earn well, therefore, I am. I'm successful, therefore, I am. I'm married, therefore, I am. Well, that's all right, perhaps for a season while you have those things, but it's pretty precarious. And she says, you know, when you look at John 16, when you look at salvation that God wins in Jesus, you can say this. This is what it is to know true humanity. I am loved, therefore I am. I am loved, therefore I am. So it doesn't depend on me whether I'm great at thinking or not great in thinking, whether things are going well, things are going badly. I am loved, therefore I am. That's where my identity, my worth, my sense of self needs to be rooted. If I'm to be supported in the downs as well as the ups, you see. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave his son up to death that all that believe in him might not perish but have a new kind of life, a life that goes on forever. Here is all our hope. Here is a love that can coax us out of darkness into his light. Here is a love that can keep coaxing us out of darkness into his healing light. Here is a love that sustains us in the ups of life, hallelujah, but also in the downs of life, for it is steadfast. It's a humbling truth. It's a humbling truth that his love must be displayed in the cross because it exposes us. It exposes the darkness within. 
but it is a healing love. For it reveals a love for us that is steadfast and certain, that is rooted in history, that is dependent on God's goodness and not our own. It is inexhaustible in its uh, forgiveness promised to all who believe and purchased by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before these uh, verses and we know them so well, but we pray that by your Spirit you would continue to work them in us in the uh, hours and days ahead. By your Spirit, Father, just take these words and continue to apply them to our heart, for you so love the world, this world. You so loved us, people like us, that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him puts their lives in his hands. Do not perish, but have new everlasting life. Father, make that truth big in our eyes. Win our hearts with that truth, that we might be coaxed out of the darkness. Keep being coaxed out of the darkness into your healing light. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.